Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Hello and welcome to Lockdown TV by Unheard. I am here with Lord Sumption, one of our most senior jurists, senior judges here in the UK, recently retired from the Supreme Court, who has for the past year been one of the most outspoken and visible opponents of lockdowns as a policy. Welcome, Lord Sumption. I'm glad to be here. Let's just start with the kind of key basic question. What about these mandatory stay-at-home orders and lockdowns did you find unacceptable, so much so that you felt you had to speak out about it? Well, I regard myself as a liberal with a small l. Until the COVID outbreak, that was a very middle-of-the-road position to be in. Since the outbreak, it's become controversial and uh, even in some people's minds, extreme. This is, I think, some indication of how far our national psychology has moved. Uh, I do not believe that liberty is an absolute value. I think that there are circumstances where it's necessary to override it, but one has to be very careful to reserve that for extreme cases. And I do not regard COVID-19 as an extreme case. Yes, the, uh, the pandemic is serious. Yes, it causes additional deaths, but I cannot regard uh, a disease from which at least 99% of people uh, recover and survive uh, as sufficiently serious for that. I cannot regard a crisis which has resulted in a small increase in the risk uh, as sufficient to justify locking people up in their homes. And when I say small, I think a good way of getting this into proportion is to look at the way that, for instance, Sir David Spiegelhalter, the world-renowned authority on the statistical assessment of risk, has looked at it. In the first 16 weeks 
of the pandemic in the UK. He reckoned the additional risk of death from COVID-19 was equivalent to uh, an extra 55 days of perfectly normal risks of dying of just about anything. That's over the population as a whole. If you were a child, it was equivalent to two extra days of normal risk. Another way of looking at it is to ask, what's the average age at which people die with COVID-19? Well, it's about uh, 82 and a half. What's the average age at which people die of anything? It's very slightly less. So we are not looking at something which involves risk of an order of magnitude greater than that which we face in everyday life. The risk of pandemic diseases is an inherent part of human existence and has been from the beginning of time. I guess there's two sort of potential objections to that that people would come up with. The first is that the risk would amplify and be magnified if it were allowed to uh, kind of run riot without being checked by these kind of government interventions. That's the theory, and that's what various models tend to show, that if you allowed it unchecked, it could reach a stage where hospitals would be under threat, where overall medical provision was reduced, and where it suddenly became a much graver risk. What do you say to that argument? Well, some of the statistics which I have uh, cited, and one could choose others, are in fact uh, equally relevant uh, whether uh, there is a lockdown or not. For instance, Sir David Spiegelhalter's uh, 16 weeks covered a period when the lockdown had been lifted as well as the initial period when it was in place. Um, but I think that the basic answer to this is that you have to decide, and it's essentially a value judgment, what is the degree of risk that you are prepared to accept? There are people who say uh, that no risk should be accepted, that no additional deaths from uh, a disease like uh, COVID-19, which can be prevented, should be allowed. The only criteria, therefore, is, is there some measure that we can take uh, to, uh, to avoid or reduce these risks? The problem about that is that it attaches no value uh, to all the various other respects in which the countermeasures undermine our national life. It attaches no value to the economic destruction. It attaches no value to the very severe educational damage. It attaches no value to the fact uh, that interaction with other human beings is not just an optional extra. It's not just a sort of leisure choice. It is a basic human need. Uh, and I think you have to accept that there is more to life than the avoidance of death. Now, ultimately, I don't think you can reduce this to a mathematical statement. It is a value judgment. But I think that the wrong value judgment was made. And I think it's quite interesting that nobody ever contemplated uh, the possibility of a lockdown of healthy people, as opposed to people who are infected or ill, until the end of March in the UK, and very slightly earlier in other European countries. Um, the, this is an, an, an event for which governments have been planning for a very long time. The National Risk Register uh, assessed the possibility of a new pathogen causing a pandemic of respiratory disease uh, as being liable to lead to anything up to 750,000 deaths. So that's much more than what 
than anything that we would have had, whether we'd had a lockdown or not. Uh, the, the planning assumed that the great object of public policy uh, was that life should be as normal as possible, that you should isolate the sick and the vulnerable, not the healthy, uh, and that you should avoid coercion, the latter being, I think, particularly important. But if one looks through the SAGE minutes for the first two months before, in other words, the lockdown was ordered in the UK, you find them giving advice along exactly those lines. And we know that what uh, changed the position was the fact that Italy had followed the Chinese example in ordering a national lockdown at the end of February uh, of last year. Now, ultimately, this all stems from China. And Professor Ferguson has accepted in a very candid uh, <coughs> interview in The Times a couple of weeks ago, uh, that they never realized, as he put it, that they could get away with it until China, followed by Italy, showed them the way. Now, I think that's a serious problem about that. China was able to do that because it doesn't have a culture of liberty. Uh, it is a totalitarian state. It is a state which is founded upon the principle that human beings are simply tools of collective national policy. That's completely different from our tradition. And I think most objective people would recognize that. What they tend to say is, well, this is a very serious pandemic. I've given my own views about how serious it really is. We have to temporarily depart from our normal principles. Uh, and that's fine because we can go back to being less like China and more like the United Kingdom when it's all over. Now, I think that this is an illusion. Because our status as a free society doesn't actually depend upon our laws or our constitution. It depends on convention. It depends on a collective instinct as to the right way to behave. There are many things that governments can do uh, which it is generally accepted they should not do. And one of them, until last March, uh, was to lock up healthy people in their homes. So do you think we have taken an irreversible step towards being more Chinese, more dirigist in our... I very much fear that we have, because the problem is when you depend for your basic freedoms on convention rather than law, once the convention is broken, the spell is broken. Once you get to a position where it is unthinkable to lock people up nationally, uh, except uh, when somebody thinks it's a good idea, then frankly, there is no longer a barrier at all. We have crossed that threshold and governments do not forget these things. So you, you would worry that, for example, if there's another pandemic or if there's another new variant or there's some other pathogen identified somewhere, now the precedent is set, what we do is we shut down society. Yes. What I'm concerned about is not simply the danger of another new pathogen causing additional deaths. Uh, I think that this is a model uh, which will come to be accepted, if we're not very careful, uh, as a way of dealing with all manner of collective problems. Under existing statutes, the government has power to do just about anything. 
The Civil Contingencies Act says that it can do anything that an Act of Parliament can do, i.e. anything at all, subject in the case of that Act to getting parliamentary consent within not more than seven days afterwards. Now, parliamentary consent is not quite a foregone conclusion, but it almost is. So the government has immense powers. The only thing that protects us from a despotic use of those powers is a convention that we have decided to discard. It's much more difficult to create conventions than to break them. These things emerge from decades, if not centuries, of habits of thought, but they, they are fragile. They are cultural constructs which can disappear almost overnight. So what's interesting hearing you talk is that actually your objection is not strictly a legal one, uh, which I suppose is why your sort of vo vocalness on the topic has been controversial, because you said that if you had judged the risk differently, you might have supported this policy if you'd thought that. So in fact, there's a bit of your judgment of science there mixed in with your sense of politics and weighing up of the risk against freedom and so on. Yes, precisely. I don't think, that unless you believe that liberty is an absolute value that trumps absolutely everything, you have to make an assessment of how serious the risk is. You can't simply say, well, I'm perfectly prepared to resign uh, my freedoms and everything that is fundamental and that makes life worth living into the hands of scientists. You have to form a view. So, so the million dollar question is, why did you form that view and so few other people? Where are your colleagues, either former Supreme Court justices, senior lawyers or politicians, where have the establishment voices been opposing this direction of travel? Well, senior judges are, by duty, silent on the subject until it comes before them in the form of a legal challenge. And the points that I have been making are essentially not legal, but as you quite correctly say, that they are political and constitutional in a much broader sense of, of the word. Uh, the big differentiator, of course, is the empire of fear. Uh, I made this point in the first of my wreath lectures in 2019, uh, that uh, if people are sufficiently frightened, their craving for security will make them submit to almost anything. Uh, this is what I have called the Hobbesian bargain. Hobbes believed in the absolute state. It didn't have to be a monarchy, but it had to be absolute. He said that there was nothing short of the state actually killing people uh, that the state should not be entitled to do. So he was not, let us say, a believer in liberty. This was because of his experience of the anarchy which flowed from the civil war in England. Um, and Hobbes believed that we resign our freedoms unconditionally and permanently into the hands of the state in return for security. Now, uh, this is a model which, ever since the rise of a recognizable form of modern liberalism in the middle of the 19th century, has been almost universally rejected. But we have tended to revert to it during the current crisis. And I think that that is a very striking and very sinister development. People who are frightened will submit. The government has, I think, exaggerated existing fears. I don't think it's wholly responsible for the fright, but I think it's partly responsible 
for it. But do you mean that other voices who might have felt objections or uncertain about the policy are, have been prevented from speaking out because they are frightened of what the consequences would be? Is that another Well, component? I think that there is, first of all, a public opinion clearly favours these intrusive and illiberal measures. I don't think there's the slightest doubt about that. I think the majority in, in favour of them is less than it was, but it's still a significant majority, no doubt. Um, and I think that the reluctance to speak out is born of a number of things. First of all, many of those who might speak out share the fear. Secondly, and I think possibly more important, is the fact that many of those who uh, might otherwise have spoken out believe that there is a sense in which solidarity requires them to accept the current prevailing view. Particularly during a time of crisis. Exactly. I think that, I mean, that is not a view that I share. There are, I think, two forms of solidarity. There is the solidarity of mutual sympathy and support, and there is the solidarity of intolerant conformism. And what we are witnessing in relation to opinion on COVID-19 is the second of those things, not the first. The first, I think, is wholly admirable. The second is rather sinister. And this goes back to the origins of modern liberalism with, for example, John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill regarded public sentiment and public fear as the principal threat to a liberal democracy. Precisely because it was democratic, the tendency would be for it to influence policies in a way that whittled away the island within which we are entitled to control our lives to next to nothing. That's what he regarded as the big danger. It didn't happen in his own lifetime. It has happened in many countries in the 20th century, and it's happening in Britain now. So you spoke out because you weren't afraid, oh, clearly you're either of the virus especially, but also because of your position, the fact that you're a retired Supreme Court justice, you didn't either care especially what people thought or you weren't an elected politician, so you felt liberated in that way. I don't have to please anybody. Clearly, I would like to feel that my views were shared by as many people as possible, and they are shared by a very important minority. It is a minority in the UK. But uh, I don't uh, owe my current position to anybody. I don't, I'm not beholden to anybody. I'm retired. I am not bound by the conventions that would bind uh, a serving judge. And I think that, uh, and I'm also wholly politically neutral. I have absolutely no political allegiance. And I think it's very unfortunate that this has become to some extent a political issue. How has it felt to be suddenly in this controversial minority? Well, I regret that it's a minority. But I think that somebody has got to speak up for the very many victims, some of whom don't realize that they are victims, but shortly will, of the current measures. Somebody, I think, has to speak up, particularly for the young. I mean, there are many categories of victims, but the most striking thing is that we are destroying the career opportunities of a generation of people. And that is, oddly enough, an easier thing to do in modern conditions than it once was. We live in a relatively hierarchical age uh, in which there is a formula for getting on uh, in life and in work. Uh, you have to have started reasonably young. You don't, shouldn't have too many gaps in your CV. 
you get your foot on the ladder and you climb upwards. That is the way that the world works. People do not, on the whole, get parachuted in most fields of life uh, into high positions. So that missing the bottom rung of the ladder is a really serious event for people. We have recently had statistics uh, that shows that the increase in unemployment uh, resulting from the measures has been concentrated very heavily in young people emerging onto the job market. And we haven't seen anything yet about that because the figures at the moment are being kept uh, much lower than they would otherwise be by the furlough scheme, which is an admirable scheme that can't go on forever. When it stops, there will be an enormous rise in unemployment. Uh, it will be concentrated among the young, partly because they are the job seekers and partly because the last in first out principle, which governs most redundancy arrangements, will ensure that it's the young that are cast out on the street first. I think that this is a major generational injustice. And I think that it is also a wider catastrophe. Because if you alienate a whole generation of people in this way, they are going to turn against the democratic model which produced this. There were already signs of this well before COVID-19. Surveys have shown that the young are particularly disenchanted with democracy. And they get a raw deal in other ways. House prices uh, and uh, educational charges at tertiary level are a, a classic example. <clears throat> so that a group within society which is very large, very vocal and articulate, and which has enough grievances already, is being handed an enormous additional grievance quite unnecessarily. And yet they, in surveys, show that they're in favour of it. Yes. So what you feel is that those other groups in society who are going to be badly affected simply just don't understand how badly that is, or they have no voice and we can't hear Very them. Very often it hasn't happened yet. Although the inhuman way in which some universities have treated their students has brought it home to quite a few of them. Um, but I think that many of the victims of this, um, <clears throat> these arrangements uh, do not realize that they are victims and will not realize it until later. Some of it may never connect cause and effect. And that, I think, is unfortunate because it reduces the likelihood that we will learn from the lessons. But looking back on it, I think that historians will quite clearly, quite clearly see the connection of cause and effect and we'll see that we have wantonly laid waste by what I can only describe as a scorched earth policy uh, to large parts of our national life, some of which will revive, but some of which will revive either very slowly or not at all. So because of that atmosphere of fear you describe, both of the threat, but also the sense that it's a time of crisis and we should all be of one mind, it's hard to know what to make of those opinion polls anyway, isn't it? Although I'm sure they're accurate in terms of reporting what people say, once the kind of crisis has officially started, people don't want to deviate from it. They don't while the crisis remains unchanged. But public opinion is notoriously fickle. And public opinion which is induced by fear is more fickle than most because fear goes up and down and eventually will presumably disappear. Uh, moreover, there is a well-known phenomenon that the way that people answer questions posed by pollsters doesn't always represent the, the way that they actually behave. Uh, the United Kingdom is full of people who approve 
the measures, but are nevertheless making their own risk assessments and not always acting consistently with them. Uh, I think that it's healthy that people should make their own risk assessments. A lot of people are doing that who profess to be behind the current measures. So this is the, the, the big deal, isn't it? This is the biggest question of them all, which is, is this somehow a symptom of a declining system of governance? You know, is it, can one extrapolate and say, well, actually, you know, the, the kind of uh, over agreement of the, two, the centrist parties of the past decades, combined with populist ructions recently and people getting fed up about all sorts of things, has sort of perfectly prepared the ground. People are fed up with liberal democracy, too much shouting and not enough action. I think that there is a real danger of that. Uh, I wouldn't associate it too closely with the particular recent developments that you mentioned, uh, although I think they've certainly contributed. Uh, because I think that democracy is inherently fragile. We have an idea that it's a very robust system. Democracies have existed for about 150 years. In which country? In this country, I think you could say that they existed from the second half of the, of the 19th century. They are not the norm. Uh, democracies were regarded in ancient times, Aristotle is the classic source on this, as inherently self-destructive ways of government. Because, said Aristotle, um, democracies naturally turn themselves into tyranny because uh, the the populace uh, will always be a sucker or a demagogue who will turn himself into an absolute ruler. Well, now that's a simplified and crude model for what has actually marked the end of democracies whenever they have ended, really, almost throughout history. Um, so what you have is a, an inherently self-destructive mechanism. Now, it is quite remarkable that Aristotle's gloomy predictions about the fate of democracies have been falsified by the experience of the West ever since the beginning of democracy. And I think one needs to ask why that is. In my view, it is, the reason is this. Demo Aristotle was basically right about the tendencies, but uh, we have managed to avoid it by a culture, a shared political culture of restraint. Uh, and it is that shared political culture which accounts for the fact that democracies have not turned themselves into tyrannies so far. And as I suggested earlier, this is a culture of restraint, which because it depends on the collective mentality of our societies. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's extremely fragile, quite easy to destroy, and extremely difficult to recreate. And do you think also there are other aspects of shared culture that are prerequisites for a functioning liberal democracy? Um, institutions, until recent decades, shared religion, a sense that your fellow countrymen roughly see the world the same as you do, and therefore you're prepared to share a balance of power with them, even if you don't agree with them. Do you think we've lost that? And if if so, what do we do about it? I think that that institutions are clearly very important, but they also depend on a collective collective conventions about the right way to do things and the right way to behave. Um, Once those collective sentiments vanish, the institutions which give effect to them necessarily become less powerful. So what do we do about it, Lord Sumption? We're we're facing quite a bleak prospect here. Can you see, can you think of any measures that will start to kind of buttress those things that we need to be strong in order to go back to a free liberal democracy? Uh, I think that once the present crisis is over, people will strive to do that. But there will be other crises, some of which will be about health and some of which will be about other things, that will propel them straight back in again. It's not until we learn to say, we have got to live with misfortune, we have got to live with risk, because the alternative is worse. Um, It's not until we learn to say that, which is quite a sophisticated position, that we are going to get out of this. I think we probably will eventually, but it may well take a very long time. The pendulum swings to and fro. Eventually, one reaches a stage where people get as fed up uh, with despotic governments uh, as they have recently become with democratic ones, but possibly with better reason. Isn't the reality also that people who are vaccinated will behave differently, whether you officially recognize it in law or not. So you're essentially encouraging people to ignore whatever the regulations. Well, the government is doing its best to pretend that the vaccine makes a difference and at the same time that it doesn't make a difference. This is a position that is internally irreconcilable. And uh, the basic problem, I think, is uh, that... um, uh, it's the basic problem is coercion. If you adopt 
coercion as your way of influencing public behavior, you have to have rules that are capable of being enforced. The police cannot go around saying, uh, okay, uh, we're going to enforce it against you because you have not had the vaccine and you're over 70, but not against you because you're 50 and have had it. So if you're going to have a system which depends on enforcement, you can't rely on these distinctions. But that is the problem about coercion. If you adopt coercion as your model, you are going to have to stop making distinctions which are fundamentally important. You are going to have to refuse to distinguish between people who are vulnerable and people who are not. And that is one of the major factors that makes the current system so despotic. Uh, and so irrational. So in your system, there would be recommendations that if you had the vaccine, we recommend you behave like this if you haven't. Exactly. And it's up to you to decide. That is how Sweden has worked from the outset, with very minor exceptions. It is how we intended to work. That was the plan before the 23rd of March. Uh, It was the advice of SAGE, which said that people have got to be treated like adults, capable of making their own decisions and their own assessments. This was 10 years of science-based planning that was thrown out the window in a panic at the end of March. But different behaviours for the vaccinated and non-vaccinated, and a lot of people's minds will start making them think about vaccine passports and you know, documents that show which stream you're in, which poses new problems to liberty, doesn't it? Well, it does. Uh, I do not... <laughs> Uh, have strong views about vaccine passports. Uh, They are an invasion of privacy, but the information in question is on government computers or NHS computers anyway, certainly whether you've been vaccinated or not is. Um, uh, So that I think the privacy concerns can be overstated. I do not like a world in which you have to produce a document in order to justify partaking in the ordinary Um, activities of human existence any more than the next person. The trouble is that the alternative is even worse. Uh, I would prefer a system which was entirely voluntary and which trusted people. But uh, given that I don't think that that is a politically feasible option, I think that we have got to choose the least bad thing. And to my mind, a vaccine passport is a lot less bad than simply indiscriminately depriving everybody of what makes life worth living. Are you not worried that it's actually quite a major change in the way we run our society to suddenly say that every human being needs to take the latest government mandated vaccine and produce a document to prove it? Otherwise, they are essentially outcasts. They may not be able to go to a restaurant, get on an airplane, go to the cinema. That sounds like quite a big step. Yes, it is. And I think it's a regrettable step. Um, and if people were prepared, to trust each other uh, and to rely on non-coercive measures, we wouldn't need it. Uh, But uh, I recognize that most of my fellow citizens want coercive measures, uh, and therefore it is incumbent on us, I think, to think of the least intrusive and the least objectionable coercive measure. But it's that essentially is tantamount to a a compulsory vaccine then. I mean, you can say it's voluntary, you don't need to ever step foot in a restaurant or a cinema ever again if you don't want to take it, but essentially it's saying it's a compulsory vaccine. I think there is a difference, uh, but I think that it's very similar. And I, you know, I regret this, but I think a compulsory vaccine is a lot better than compulsory house arrest.
Would you defend the right of people not to take the vaccine? Yes, I would. Uh, I think that uh, personally, I mean, I've had shot one of the vaccine. Personally, I think that the anti-vaxxers uh, are, they don't, I'm, so far as I can see, have a very persuasive case. Uh, but I think that that may be my view, but it's a subject on which if somebody's going to take an intrusive step in one, with one's body, it's a subject on which everybody is entitled to their own view, and my view will not be universally shared. So I do not uh, object to people having their own choice. But I do understand that if you are uh, going to do that, you have to have uh, some way of tempting people who are frightened out into the world. It's rather similar, in, in a way, to my position about masks. I don't think there's much evidence that masks are very helpful, um, but they may contribute to encouraging people to come out and participate. Um, and it's the same with vaccines, but uh, in spades, because uh, we've got to tempt people back into sport grounds, back into the theater. And I think it's inevitable, with whatever government does, that private enterprises, for example, theater managers, will require some evidence of vaccination, because otherwise people who are still afraid uh, of being infected simply won't come. Now, I think it's very unfortunate that that is how humanity behaves. But we're not in a world where we can have the, the best solution. We're in a world where we have to choose because of the fears of so many people. We have to choose between more or less bad options. It, it opens the possibility, though, doesn't it, that there will be a resistant small minority of people who will not want to take the vaccine, either for reasons of principle or they don't want to, or whatever their reasons. And they will then be a kind of excluded part of society. And our talk about needing to have shared sets of values and shared cohesion in order for democracy to work, that's the big step back. Well, I think it's, it's a step back. I think we shouldn't exaggerate how far it's a step back. Um, uh, people who do not want to be vaccinated have, in a sense, chosen uh, a, a, an option which will reduce the extent to which other people are prepared to mix with them. Um, uh, and so it remains voluntary. You, c you don't have to have the vaccine if you are prepared to put up with the problems of, of, of not having the vaccine. Okay. Let me ask you this. If during the coming months the advertised timetable from the government starts to slip, whether it's a new variant, whether there are new talk of pediatric vaccines, or someone decides that cases are rising unacceptably, whatever the, the new threat, at what point do you think it would be fair enough for a sort of campaign of civil disobedience to begin? I mean, at what point do you think that becomes an acceptable option? I think it's very difficult to say that there is a precise point uh, I don't think it's possible to put it in polling terms. What I do think is that such a point exists. Sometimes the most public-spirited thing that you can do with despotic laws like these is to ignore them. I think that if the government persists long enough with locking people down, depending on the severity of the lockdown, uh, civil disobedience is likely to be the result. It will be discrete civil 
disobedience in the classic English way. I don't think that we are likely to go onto the streets waving banners. I think we will just calmly decide that we are not going to pay any attention to this. There are some things you have to pay attention to. You can't go to a shop if it's closed. Um, on the other hand, uh, you can invite friends round for a drink, whatever Mr. Hancock says. People are doing that to some extent already. Uh, yeah, I mean, you I walk around London and it's quite clear that not everyone is obeying the regulation. Uh, absolutely. And obviously, it's, it's not a sudden moment. How, how close to that moment are we? And would you also say, right, there's a point at which you're just not going to pay any attention to it anymore? Uh, certainly. How close are we to that point? Everyone will have their own different threshold. Uh, but uh, I think that we, in, in, the, in the eyes of many people who disapprove uh, of the lockdown and some people who approve of it, we've reached that point quite a long time ago. So do you feel sad to have to say that as a recently retired Supreme Court justice, that in your view it would be acceptable to break the law either in, at a moment just past or at a moment shortly about to happen? I feel sad that we have the kind of laws uh, which uh, public-spirited people may need to break. Um, and uh, you know, I think that is unfortunate. But I have always taken a line on this which is probably different from that of most of my former colleagues. I do not believe that there is a moral obligation to obey the law. Uh, there is clearly a legal obligation, that is tautologous. And I also think that you cannot complain if you break the law and are punished. But is there a moral obligation to do so as well? In my view, there is no moral obligation to obey the law simply because it is the law. You have to have a high degree of respect both for the object that the law is trying to achieve and for the way that it's been achieved and also, I think, uh, for uh, how the law has been made. Uh, some laws uh, invite breach. I think this is one of them. So, in theory, if we progress long past that point and suddenly it's after next Christmas and there are still what you consider to be despotic regulations that are unwarranted, we could see you on a stage in Trafalgar Square with a loudspeaker in your hand leading a resistance movement. No, you wouldn't see me doing that because uh, I just don't believe in that kind of political manifestation. What you will see people spontaneously doing uh, is uh, simply quietly ignoring the law. And I think that that is, in a sense, how if one's going to have people ignoring the law, it should happen. I don't think a great public issue should be made of it. I think that it, it should simply be uh, understood that nobody respects the law of, uh, enough uh, to want to comply with it. And that is one of the most effective ways of ensuring that the law is changed. If the... You're thinking sort of Gandhi... But Gandhi, of course, was very... He was very public in his civil disobedience. This will be much more discreet than that. And it's, very, it's, it's important to emphasize that this is not something which one should be encouraging other people to do. It's a, it's a personal dilemma for every citizen. At what point am I personally prepared to ignore the law of the country in which I live, in whose making, however indirectly, I participate? That is 
a very personal dilemma. And we won't all have the same answer to it. And we won't all reach that answer at the same time. I mean, the hilarious truth, of course, is that YouGov polls may show that 80-something percent of people approve of the restrictions. But if you followed every citizen around the country uh, 24 hours a day, you would find a breach of a regulation in most of their cases, maybe the overwhelming majority at one point. So maybe the civil disobedience has been happening all along. Yes, I mean, it's a question of scale. As I said before, it's not, uh, there isn't suddenly a signal. Something doesn't suddenly go pop and then people start ignoring the thing wholesale. They start by obeying it scrupulously. They then uh, disobey it in minor respects and the respects become less minor and more frequent. That's how these things happen. And you eventually get to the position where the law is basically ignored wholesale. There are very similar things that have happened in the past. Wartime controls, for example, the carrying of identity passes, uh, were in force, believe it or not, for quite a few years after the end of the last war. And there came a point when people just tore up their identity cards, regardless of what the law said. And one day, the police uh, prosecuted somebody for doing this, and he was given an absolute discharge because the court said, this is perfectly ridiculous. We know it's the law, but it jolly well shouldn't be. Uh, And uh, the reason for it is simply gone. Now, I can't see the court saying that in more, except in extreme cases uh, or cases which are like identity pass is particularly trivial. Uh, But this is the way these things happen. They don't happen because there is a revolution in the streets. They don't happen because people, least of all people like me, stand up in Trafalgar Square with a microphone. They happen because millions of people make an individual choice. My chief objection to the current rules is that they are designed to suppress individual choice and that the sooner that we get that back, the better. Okay, so let's presume that does not happen uh, and that there is no need for a mass campaign of civil disobedience and you're not even called up to the stage in Trafalgar Square whether you want to go on or not. Let's presume that things do progress according to the Prime Minister's timetable and we get pretty much normality back. What would you then conclude? What, What would you say that you have learned about society and where we are at the moment? looking back on this episode that you didn't know before? I will conclude that some of the fears that I have always had about the way that mass democracy works have proved to be true in concrete detail and sooner than I had expected. Uh, I will have learnt the enormous power of governments to influence opinion by promoting fear in a technical area which many people could understand but in practice don't. And those are dismaying lessons. I would want to learn from them about how we repair things in future. And my first uh, proposal is that governments should not treat information as a tool for manipulating public behavior. They should be calmer than the majority of their citizens. They should be completely objective. My second lesson would be that governments dealing with scientific issues should not allow themselves to be influenced by a single caucus of scientists. 
they should always test what they are being told in a way uh, that, for instance, judges test expert opinion by producing a counter-expert and working out which set of views stacks up best. Those would be the two more, most specific lessons that I would derive from the particular way uh, in which things have gone during this epidemic. Do you feel like philosophically we have been sort of degraded and that's been exposed by this? It feels like the public conversation, if, it's, if something doesn't show on a chart, it's not deemed to exist. There's this sort of worship of the measurable, worship of a certain type of rational scientific thinking, and people don't seem to have a vocabulary even for a lot of other values that matter a great deal to people. Yes, I think it's not so much the fact that it's uh, that deaths and infections are quantifiable, or certainly deaths are. I think it's very much more uh, the fact that deaths are dramatic. Um, a government that, like most governments, doesn't want to be criticised is always going to be much more influenced uh, by lines of ambulances outside NHS hospitals and death statistics than it is about, for example, the decline of gross domestic product. Yet uh, the decline of gross domestic product is also a killer. Poverty is a killer. No society ever saved lives by making itself poorer. But the way in which it wastes lives by making itself poorer are much more subtle, much more gradual, and much less visible. And so they make less impact on people. You would, might say that in other societies, there have been other values that mattered alongside life or death more than we currently can agree on. You know, I don't know if the ancient Greeks thought that courage or something mattered, and Victorians had their own, no doubt, dubious values, but it feels like there's very little that we can all sit around the table and agree matters enough for it to really be put in the balance in a life or death equation. That is true, but I think it's always been true. I don't think that there was ever a time in which basic values were universally shared. What one can say is that there have, in most periods, Basic values have been shared by a dominant group, which is a more influential group than any other. Um, the kind of virtues or vices, as some people would think, that we attribute to the Victorians were actually held only by educated, relatively well-off, high-class Victorians, but they were the people whose views matter. We are now in a world where Elites matter less, uh, and therefore where opinion is very much more kaleidoscopic, much more varied. Isn't it just a new elite, though? I mean, you could say... There's too many elites. The sort of scientism or the, the worship of a that way of thinking is, in a sense, the kind of final conclusion of the liberal um, progress, so that you get a lot of educated, university, secular people who know a lot about science, who frankly, look down their noses at anyone who doesn't see the world the same way. But the fault is in those who give them undue credence and who think that they are monolithic when in fact there are legitimate disagreements within the world of science. Why do people take that view? Uh, I don't think it's because they have developed a mentality which makes them craven in the face of science. 
I think it's, it goes back to the fact, the craving for security and the fear of risk. I think that people will always tend to give credence to somebody who says, I know the way uh, to abolish this particular risk. And scientists are presented, I think, rather unfairly as knowing that way. It's, it's what happens every time the government says, we are following the science. Are you a religious person? I'm, uh, yes, I'm a Christian. Does that factor, do you think, in your overall balancing of all these different values and how you measure it? No, I don't think so. I've tried to examine whether my Christian views have affected my view on this. They haven't. So there's no sense of the kind of um, the, the secular scientific taking over and becoming a new form of religion, or you don't, you don't sign up to that? I don't sign up to that theory at all. So to conclude, Lord Sumption, you've had this extraordinary career, unbelievably um, establishment, unbelievably successful. The previous big controversy we had here in the UK was the Brexit one, which you were on the Remain side, which was the more orthodox, more high status position. You delivered the Wreath Lecture last year, which is the kind of ultimate accolade we can give to one of our public intellectuals. And now suddenly, in the past 12 months, you find yourself sort of a renegade, or you are now, you now are experiencing life on the other side of the barricades. You, you are the, the, the small minority ho- holding the unpopular position. It's not that small, but it's a minority. Have you enjoyed it in any way? No, not particularly. I actually believe that even retired judges should be more reticent on controversial policy positions than I have been. Um, and I would very much have preferred the kind of points that I have been consistently making for the last year to have been made by just about anybody else. Those of my colleagues who disapprove or my former colleagues who disapprove of what I've been doing, have got a perfectly good point. But there are some issues which are so central to the dilemmas of our time, which are so important, uh, where I, that I think that you have to be prepared to stand up and be counted. That was Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, former Supreme Court Justice giving us an intellectual tour de force on the arguments around lockdowns. And you heard it here first, permission from a former Supreme Court justice that at some point, which may or may not have been reached already, it was morally acceptable to ignore the law. This was Lockdown TV. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.